Isaiah 44, 24. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, who formed you from the womb. I am the Lord who made all things, who alone stretched out the heavens, who spread out the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners, who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish, who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers, who says of Jerusalem, she shall be inhabited. And of the cities of Judah, they shall be built, and I will raise up their ruins. Who says to the deep, be dry, I will dry up your rivers. Who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he shall fulfill all my purpose. Saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built, and of the temple your foundation shall be laid. Thus says the Lord to his anointed, to Cyrus, whose right hand I have grasped, to subdue nations before him and to loose the belts of kings, to open doors before him that gates may not be closed. I will go before you and level the exalted places. I will break in pieces the doors of bronze and cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness and the hordes in secret places that you may know that it is I, the Lord, the God of Israel, who call you by your name. For the sake of my servant Jacob, and Israel my chosen, I call you by your name. I name you, though you do not know me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. Besides me, there is no God. I equip you, though you do not know me, that my people may know from the rising of the sun and from the west that there is none besides me. I am the Lord, and there is no other. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being. And create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. Shower, O heavens, from above, and let the clouds rain down righteousness. Let the earth open that salvation and righteousness may bear fruit. Let the earth cause them both to sprout. I, the Lord, have created it. Woe to him who strives with him who formed him, a pot among earthen pots. Does the clay say to him who forms it, What are you making? Or your work has no handles. Woe to him who says to a father, what are you begetting? Or to a woman, with what are you in labor? Thus says the Lord, the Holy One of Israel, and the one who formed him, ask me of things to come. Will you command me concerning my children and the work of my hands? I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens, and I commanded all their host. I have stirred him up in righteousness, and I will make all his ways level. He shall build my city and set my exiles free, not for price or reward, says the Lord of hosts. Thus says the Lord, the wealth of Egypt and the merchandise of Cush and the Sabians, men of stature, shall come over to you and be yours. They shall follow you. They shall come over in chains and bow down to you. They will plead with you, saying, Surely God is in you, and there is no other, no God besides him. Truly you are a God who hides himself, O God of Israel, the Savior. All of them are put to shame and confounded. The makers of idols go in confusion together. But Israel is saved by the Lord with everlasting salvation. You shall not be put to shame or confounded to all eternity. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, He is God who formed the earth and made it. He established it. He did not create it empty. He formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord and there is no other. I did not speak in secret in a land of darkness. I did not say to the offspring of Jacob, seek me in vain. I, the Lord, speak the truth. I declare what is right. Assemble yourselves and come. Draw near together, you survivors of nations. They have no knowledge who carry about their wooden idols and keep on praying to a God that cannot save. 
Declare and present your case. Let them take counsel together. Who told this long ago? Who declared it of old? Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no other God besides me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none besides me. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth. For I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, from my mouth has gone out in righteousness a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord it shall be said of me, a righteousness and strength. To him shall come and be ashamed all were who incensed against him. And the Lord, all the offspring of Israel, shall be justified and shall glory. Every word of God is perfect. Let his people bless his holy name. Amen. Who do you think you are? More importantly, who do you think God is? Couldn't you hear that was his greatest concern in this morning's passage? And it matters. The answer to those two questions will determine everything about how we live. What we obey, who we trust, what we prioritize, who and how we worship, these are outworkings of what we believe, who we think we are. And who is God? The questions are also intertwined. We know who we are by knowing rightly who God is. It doesn't work the other way. We cannot know him rightly by looking within ourselves. That's how we craft gods suited to our own imaginations. We're too self-oriented, we're too short-sighted to comprehend God in our own wisdom. And thankfully, we don't have to. In passages like this one, God is making himself known to his people. And what leaps off the page in these descriptions is that he is not us. How many times does he say, I alone am God? You know the joke of the couple who divorced over religious differences. She thought, he was God, she, thought she was God and he disagreed. This text leaves no room for doubt. He is God. He alone is God. Let's consider three diagnostic questions that make the point clear. First, do you or does he know what will come to pass? This passage is filled with declarations about what will happen later in human history. The most notable is in verse 28, who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd and shall fulfill all my purpose, saying of Jerusalem, she shall be built and of the temple, your foundation shall be laid. Remember, Isaiah is preaching here to a yet future audience. He's preaching here to God's people in exile in Babylon, which hasn't even happened yet. So even further future beyond that, is the birth of Cyrus. 
And yet God is able without reservation to name Cyrus as the one who will free his people from captivity, who will send them back to Jerusalem, who will command them to rebuild the temple, and who will provide them with many of the resources to do it from the other peoples that God has allowed Cyrus to conquer. Long before Cyrus is born, before he makes these decisions, before he carries them out, God's prophet Isaiah declares that they are to be. Unlike us, God operates with absolute certainty about the future. There are no contingencies in God's plan for his universe. Now, by contrast, except for God's promises, everything in our life is contingent. Everything is filled with ifs. The Apostle James writes, Come now, you who say today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. Instead, you ought to say, If the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance. That passage is the source of one of my favorite southern expressions, God willing and the creek don't rise. We live a life of contingencies. And we ought to daily admit that. None of our hands, none of our plans should be held with certainty. But don't you find yourself often trying to? And then when our plans are at risk, when it looks like they may not work out, don't we panic? We get fearful or angry. We're willing to sin, to, to bend the rules to get our plans back on track. Because we're acting as though our will must be done. And Isaiah asks, who do you think you are? Everything that God wants to come to pass, it comes to pass. His plans are the ones that can't be thwarted. And instead of being a frustration, this should be comfort to us that our God operates with certainty about the future, that he's not going to be surprised by anything that happens and that his promises are therefore completely secure. Even the most powerful forces in the world are not contingencies for God. They don't create ifs in God's plan. A second question for comparison, do these powers serve your purposes or his? Does anything in the universe fully serve your purposes? Verse 24, the Lord formed you from the womb, who made all things, who spread out the earth by myself, who frustrates the signs of liars and makes fools of diviners, who turns wise men back and makes their knowledge foolish, who confirms the word of his servant and fulfills the counsel of his messengers. Everyone serves God's purposes. God even ordains what Cyrus will do. He says, I have chosen you to be a king to me. God speaks directly to Cyrus, a future king of a future empire. 
and sets his entire rule in the context of God's sovereign governance of whatsoever comes to pass. Hey, Cyrus, when you conquer these nations, it will be because I broke down their gates for you. When you take away their wealth, it will be because I gave it to you. God is not constrained by any power of this world. As the creator, a scholar writes, God is free to bend events any way he wants them to go. That's why Judah will not stay in exile in Babylon. Even before it happens, even before they feel the weight of that suffering and that chastisement, even before they feel the pangs and the, of that longing for home, even before they feel the, the experiential hopelessness that we will never return home, it will always be like this, even before they feel the first moment of that defeat. What God has ordained for redemptive history will come to pass. Cyrus will rise to power. He will return them to Jerusalem. They will rebuild the temple. That's what Cyrus wants to do and freely chooses to do because that's what God has ordained for the history of redemption. Everything that happens, big and small. It's all interconnected in the history God has written for his universe. The Messiah wasn't going to come to Babylon. That's not what the scriptures say. What happens with Judah and the return to Jerusalem under Cyrus is critically important for the fulfillment of God's promises. And it's always that way. Big events, what we call little events, Religious events, secular events, there's no distinction when it comes to God's sovereignty. He has ordained whatsoever comes to pass in all of them. We must seek the will of God in all our decisions. We have perfect access to what theologians call his preceptive will in Scripture. Knowing and obeying what God commands and forbids of us will get us a long way toward living out his will. We like to act as though it's really difficult to discern God's will while we generally ignore the really, really clear parts he's given us in his law. And in less objective matters, we pray for the clarity and the courage to know how to act in ways that are pleasing to him. And we do all of this within the bounds of the certain knowledge that God is God and we are not. Those scriptures sometimes uses analogical language to help us understand an otherwise incomprehensible God. Make no mistake, God does not have to adapt to our actions. And, and though we are able to act in ways that are contrary to his law, his preceptive will, make no mistake, God is not surprised by what we do. Kevin DeYoung's little book, Just Do Something, it's on the book table. It has a great chapter on these distinctions. If you want more detail than I can cover this morning about the will of God. 
But when you read a passage like this, Isaiah and all of Scripture should leave us free from any doubt. God is God, and we are not. A third question puts it even more plainly. Do you make the future what it is? Or does God? You know the expression, if it's to be, it's up to me. Nothing could be less biblical. Nothing. Because more than knowing the future, more than commanding its participants, God eternally shapes all things to work for his glory. One of the reformers observed that Isaiah is quick to point out the end for which Jerusalem was rebuilt. If you're there and you're in Judah and you're in their mindset in captivity, you just think about wanting to be free and wanting to be out of this and back home and back where you ought to be. That's the perspective of humans. But what is the end for which Jerusalem was to be rebuilt? It was so that the pure worship of God would be restored. And so that the Messiah would come to save God's people from their sins. He does not promise the restoration so the people may seek their own ease. He promises the restoration so that the Lord's people may purely and sincerely call upon him. Now this level of sovereignty that God ordains whatsoever comes to pass, it does prompt an alarming question. How then can God's plan include evil? For the Babylonian captivity, innocent lives were lost. Babylon, a wicked nation, prospered for a time. In the midst of this, as Babylon's empire grew, false gods were praised as being greater than Yahweh. See, evil is not incompatible with God's plan. Do you remember the cross? In our redemption, did not evil men convict Jesus of crimes, torment and ridicule him, and hang him on a cross to die? On a smaller stage, no doubt each of our lives have been touched by evil, some of them in profound and devastating ways. How can it be that these things are a part of a good God's good plan. Another pastor writes, the strategies of God include everything that happens as God pursues his redemptive purpose in the world. Evil is not outside of God's control. He uses it without being dirtied by it. Isaiah is clear. God does not just allow darkness and calamity and then blame them on someone else. Nor is he defeated by the gritty realities of human history. He's using them for a redemptive purpose. Verse 7, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. 
God claims ultimate authority over everything that happens. Scripture's filled with warnings for us that we should be neither surprised nor despondent at the presence of suffering and evil in our lives. The sinner intends the action for evil. He meant to do the evil that he wants to do. But God intends the very same action for good. He meant to do the good that he wants to do with that evil. Precision here is very important. It's not that God changes or turns evil actions into good ones. When it was done, in the very moment the evil was done, God was doing the good he meant to do. All evil that is done serves his good and sovereign purpose. And what else can we say but that God is God and we are not? What we do not think could possibly be used for good can by God. What we do not think can possibly be redeemed can by God. What suffering or hardship cannot have been worth the redemptive purpose can be by God. He who causes the future to be can use even evil we cannot fathom for glorious ends we cannot imagine. And we can move forward with confident hope, even in a world filled with evil, because we know this, that God is God and we are not. And in God's word, the question, who do you think you are, is not primarily chastisement. It's a call to comfort and hope as we remember the godness of God. This morning's passage begins and ends with the declaration that he is God and there is no other. Only in him are righteousness and strength. Because God knows, Isaiah knows, that in our sorrow, in our confusion, and our impatience, we forget who God is. And then we have to learn the hard way that the gods of our imagination cannot save us. I've often found that. I've found that in a trial, I will pull away from God because I'm discouraged by his will. But upon reflection, I realize it wasn't God I was clinging to before anyway. It was a God of my own making, an, an idol of my own creation that had let me down. I'd forgotten who God was. And that's why I felt so far from him. Judah could not have imagined how God would work things out. They were beaten down and humiliated in exile. It seemed impossible to them that God's promises could come to fulfillment through this path. 
But here, even before it happens, God had already ordained every step of the way. From the exile, to Cyrus, to the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem, to the Messiah who would move from the gates of Jerusalem to save his people from their sin. Isn't the cross the ultimate picture of God's sovereignty? When I wrestle with these issues and struggle to reconcile it, I always have to go back to the cross. The evil plans of men, freely chosen, they were doing what they wanted to do. And at the same time, working exactly according to God's plan to glorify himself in salvation. Praise God that he didn't withdraw from the evil and the messiness of this world. He entered into it. He directed it all for his glorifying and saving purposes. One teacher said, well, that Isaiah 45, 7 is not an embarrassment. It's what we love about God. Not even evil can frustrate. But easy for God doesn't mean easy for us, does it? It's difficult for Judah to trust how God's plan is going to work out. And when we look at our circumstances, it's the same. That's why real faith comes not from improved circumstances, but from remembering who God is. Real faith doesn't come from seeing the details of God's plan for history. God gave Judah here in this passage the entire blueprint of the next 200 years of Jewish history. And so many of them, when the moment came, still could not believe God. No, real faith doesn't come by God giving us more of the details. It comes from God showing us more of himself. Real faith is exercised not when we see all the details of history, but when we see the God in whose hands history rests. Kids, there's a great, though unsettling scene in C.S. Lewis's story, The Silver Chair. There's a moment in that story where Lewis writes an allegory of the interaction Jesus has with the woman at the well. And it's Jill. Jill's been walking through the forest. She's tired and thirsty. She comes to a clearing and she sees a stream of cool water. But she freezes because she sees the lion, Aslan, resting next to it. The lion tells her she may come and drink at the stream. But she's scared. She doesn't know Aslan well. She doesn't know what's going to happen. And so she first asks him if he'll leave so that she can feel safer. And Aslan just growls at her. And so instead, she asks Aslan for a promise that her life will be safe. And he will make no such promise. Now she's really thirsty. And so she asks Aslan what's going to happen. She asks if he eats girls. Jill thinks that if she can just get more details about the future, 
She won't be afraid of the future. But Aslan's answer is even more alarming. He says, yes, I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms. The lion didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. The lion just said it. I dare not come and drink, said Jill. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Jill, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. It never occurred to Jill to disbelieve the lion. No one who had seen his face could do that. And her mind suddenly made itself up. It was the worst thing she ever had to do. But she went forward to the stream, knelt down and began scooping up water in her hand. It was the coldest, most refreshing water she had ever tasted. You didn't need to drink much of it, for it quenched your thirst at once. Christians, the reality in which we live is the one in which God, who is good, is in complete control. We can grasp around for more details and better circumstances and less risk, but it will never give you what you're looking for. Security and satisfaction, our greatest desires, can only be found in him. We want God to move more quickly. We want him to give us more details. We want a lot of things. And if we, we say if we just have them, then we will believe. Then we will feel safe. And Isaiah says, who do you think you are? God has told us what he's doing with history. He will glorify himself, saving his people from their sins, conforming them to the image of his son. The way of the cross is not easy. Following him is union with his sufferings. But it's also an invitation to his joy. It's the alternative. Though it looks so easy just to go our own way, it's the alternative which is disaster. One teacher concludes, if you cling to your hurt feelings and dashed expectations and broken dreams and stubborn pride, and if you insist on sulking and having things your own way, you will bow unwillingly then to your eternal exclusion and regret. And the saddest part is that you will deserve it. Nothing of our own making can bring real security and satisfaction. No idol will ever deliver you the future that you seek. There is only one God. And this is him. So will you trust him? For your far future, your salvation, yes. And also for today and for tomorrow. 
Will you live even now in the comfort and confidence of his promises? For he is the Lord. There is no other. When your circumstances are not what you want, will you remember that you are not God? And then rejoice that he is. He knows what the future holds. He bends the most powerful forces in the world to his purposes. And he has ordained for his glory whatsoever comes to pass. I don't know who you think you are. But he is the Lord. And there is no other. May his people praise his name forever. Amen.